you would please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at uh, verse 10 of that chapter, but we will put it in context by beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, uh, delighted once again to be looking at this powerful and marvelous piece of scripture. This word spoken uh, by you through your Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, and then down to the ages to your church. We ask simply that your spirit would even now take up once again his, his office as teacher, and would instruct our hearts and our minds and our souls to the end that we might not only understand but rejoice in that which we learn this day, and that we might live in a way more pleasing to you as a result. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Several years ago, the Art Institute in Chicago owned a treasure that they didn't even know was a treasure. Uh, in their permanent collection, they had a, a chalk drawing of a, of a hand, just a hand raised like this, a uh, hand raised in blessing, and uh, they looked at it and they recognized it uh, seemed to be well done, uh, but it was, uh, it was terribly damaged. Uh, some of the some of the chalk, uh, which in uh, the day that it was made and used, was apparently made of lead, and and that which had been used from shading had, which was originally a uh, a white or light gray, had actually turned black uh, over time because of the oxidation. And uh, you know they looked at it and they just uh, the scholars decided that uh, um, because of the damage and other things they would just you know, stick it in with the uh, rest of the permanent collection in the uh, vault down downstairs with the the lesser known artists. But then in 1987, uh, they decided to re-examine and catalog every work that they had in the uh, the institute. 
And once again, uh, they, uh, they looked at the drawing of that hand. And uh, the closer they looked at it, and the more they discussed it, they, they thought perhaps it had been done by a, uh, a student of the, uh, the great Renaissance master Raphael. And so they, uh, they decided to call in a Raphael uh, expert, a man by the name of Conrad Oberhuber, and, uh, and he looked at it, and he was, uh, quite frankly, convinced that it was an original by Raphael. Well, there was some stir of excitement, of course, and so they immediately packed the thing up and they flew it off to England. Uh, because in England they had uh, many more uh, original Raphaels and, uh, and a lot more uh, very, uh, very scholarly people who understood Raphael's work. And they got it over there, and sure enough, the verdict was that the chalk drawing they had, uh, even in the condition that it was in, was actually an original by Raphael himself, one of the greatest figures in art history. And so they brought it back, and they realized that they had to take this, this damaged piece of work, this art, and they had to try and fix it. And they, they really, they, they slaved over it, as only uh, those who are meticulous in that kind of work can do. And they, uh, they chemically, believe it or not, they chemically converted uh, the oxidized chalk to its original color. I don't know how they do that stuff. Uh, but when they took the cardboard off the back of the thing, there was sort of a cardboard backer on it. Uh, they realized that there was a, uh, a watermark on it. And sure enough, that watermark authenticated the fact that it had been uh, uh, done somewhere uh, around 19, uh, 1520 uh, in uh, Florence, which was right around the time of Raphael's uh, death. So uh, the, the chalk drawing became a, a permanent part, of course, of uh, the Art Institute's collection and one of only 12 original Raphaels in all of North America. And so for them, it was a, a great, great find. Well, the value of a picture, of course, depends on uh, who created it. And the same is true of a person. In fact, when we realize that we are created by God... What we understand is that our value cannot be met with a price. We are beyond value. We are of extraordinary worth, if we might put it that way, beyond calculation. And that's really very interesting. That's precisely the point that Paul has come to. Remember that he began by saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins right out of the womb. Then this God, who is rich in mercy and grace, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, and now, he says, I want you to see that you, in fact, have been created by God. You are his workmanship. You are extraordinary. You know, what's fascinating to me is how many years people can spend, some much of their lives, frankly, trying to figure out uh, who they are and uh, what their lives are all about and uh, whether or not uh, their lives have any real meaning and value. You know the kind of cogitations people go through. Everybody does it, at least for a while. Some people do it ad nauseum. But what we find here is that Paul answers that right from the get-go. And we don't have to wait or spend years trying to figure it out because Paul says very clearly that we do have meaning and purpose and value precisely because we are what the scripture says we are, created by God. 
I want to explore this passage by looking at and answering two questions. The first is this. What does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says we are God's workmanship? And secondly, what does being his workmanship require of us? What are the implications? So we'll take it in that order. Well, Paul begins, as we see here, by saying, for we are his workmanship. What does he mean by that? Well, the word workmanship is taken from the Greek word poema. And poema is the very word that you and I get the word poem from. As a matter of fact, some translators have actually been tempted to translate it in this way. We are God's poem. Well, that really is is rather misleading because at bottom, the word actually means something that has been made. A work, a making. I find that the best translation I've come across so far is by F.F. Bruce, who put it this way. He says, we are his work of art, his masterpiece. And that really is what Paul has been talking about, right? He's been talking about the fact that we were dead in trespasses and sins, made alive and raised together with Christ. We are his workmanship. He's been, he's been moving from the dregs to the heights. In these ten verses, that's precisely what he's been doing. And I don't think there's any more exalted description of the believer in all of Scripture than this word. Masterpiece. Workmanship. That's what you and I are. Now we know from Genesis 1, as we read before, that God is the creator of all things. Nothing exists apart from him. He brought everything into word, uh, brought everything into being by the power of his word. The whole of the first chapter is a beautiful and moving explanation of God's doing just that. And Paul tells us in Romans 1.20 that when God did that, it declared his glory to such an extent that, it, that nobody can deny that he exists. Paul writes, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. At the beginning of Psalm 19, David says exactly the same thing. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Nature, nature itself radiates the glory of God. And we, we all know that. We've all had that experience. I might drive down Route 91 at, at early hours in the morning and I'll, and I'll see the sun rising over uh, Old Deerfield or, or coming up over the Holy Oak Range or the Oxbow. The colors, the lighting is absolutely magnificent. We've all seen it in the the extraordinary color-saturated richness of autumn in New England. This winter, believe it or not, we've had plenty of opportunity to see that every single piece of sleet or every single flake of snow that falls is unique and different and beautiful and symmetrical. And in just a couple more months, and we all know it's coming, we are going to see so many different shades of green as the trees and the grass and the plants and the bushes just explode in the month of May. I don't know if there's a more beautiful place to live in May than where we live. 
everywhere we look, God's glory is on display in every season. Yet as wonderful as the cosmos is, it is not God's masterwork. That is seen in something else. His creation of man and woman. Take a baby. We like babies. There are a couple babies here. We love babies. Babies are extraordinary creatures. Right out of the womb, their minds begin to take in and remember every single thing that they see and hear and touch. It's all recorded in that, that, that brain of theirs. And their eyes, always so wide and looking at things. Think about the eye. Right? It's, it's got this, this tiny little lens that focuses stuff. And everything it sees is focused and it goes through there and it strikes the retina. You know what happens when it strikes the retina? It stimulates 100... I had to write it down because I can't remember. It stimulates 125 million nerve endings at the same moment. And this is processed by millions of micro switches, which is funneled down through the optic nerve, which contains a million separated, insulated fibers, nerve fibers. They're insulated, so they're in short circuit. Right? And where does that go? Well, it goes to the brain. And you know how long all that takes? Gone a thousand times. In snap of a finger. Now, far beyond the wonder of what's going into a baby's eye is being remembered and processed... Far more wonderful than that is the fact that that baby is made in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's not just the baby has a body, an eternal soul. But that a baby is made as much like God as any creature can be. And that's what's so extraordinary about it. And yet, we ourselves don't think of ourselves as extraordinary at all. In fact, St. Augustine, he, he really put it well. He said this. He said, Men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long course of the rivers, at the vast compass of the season, at the circular motion of the stars. And they pass by themselves without wondering. Isn't that true? That is so true. Everything else is, is wondrous to us. The computers we make, the cars we produce, the buildings we construct. But what we are as we Come created from the hand of God doesn't strike us as anything more than common. But Paul's teaching here is that man is the height of God's creation. No angel can rival him, for even no angel has been created in the image of God the way men and women have been. And yet, as wondrous as men and women are, 
They are not the masterwork that Paul is talking about here. What he says is that God's workmanship is created in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is that God's ultimate workmanship is not what we are as we come forth from the womb created in the image of God, but what happens when that individual, dead in its trespasses and sins, is made alive together with Christ. That's the crowning creation of God. I mean, we know from Scripture that every person is created by, by God. Corinthians or Colossians 1 tells us, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, we were made by God. We are, we are sustained by him in every way. But the masterwork has undergone a second creation. The one which Paul talks about so familiarly in that, in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. The old has passed, passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, this is a far greater work that God does. And it is this work that takes us and makes us the masterwork of which Paul is talking about him. The masterpiece, the poem, the work of art, if you will, of God's creation. The pinnacle of all that he has done. So men and women in Christ, we are of incalculable worth. Precisely because we are made in his image and likeness and because we have been redeemed in the manner that God has ordained through his son. And it's also true that we are his workmanship in process. Michelangelo was once asked what he was doing when he was chipping away on a huge piece of granite, shapeless rock, and he said, I'm liberating an angel from the stone. Well, that's precisely what God is doing with us. The only problem is, for us, that's a hard truth to take in. Right? Because we're so in touch with our weaknesses and our stupidity, right? Our foolishness, our sin, our misgivings, our failures. We feel anxious, we feel insecure. Some of us even feel as though our worth has been, been, you know, put down because of abuse, or rejection, age, illness, injury. Pick it. And so we find it hard to grasp what Paul is really saying here. But what he's saying is that we are his workmanship. We are, as men and women who believe by his grace in Jesus Christ and have been saved by him, we are the height of his creative work. And he delights in us. And the value that we have is not self-esteem. It's not something we've had to create and assess about ourselves that somehow makes us worth something. We are worth something because of what we are and because of what he has done in us. The second question is this. If that's the case, what are the implications of that? What What are we responsible to do? Well, first we need to keep in mind what Paul said in verses 8 and 9, and that is that 
works, good works that he talks about in 10 are not the things that save us. Uh, there's, uh, in the Middle East, there's, uh, there's uh, an interesting old, um, I don't know if it's a parable or a little story, but uh, a man was, uh, was traveling down the road on his donkey, and he, he came and he uh, saw this small little uh, fuzzy object in the road. And he couldn't quite make out what it was, so he got down off his donkey, and he walked up and looked a little closer at it, and, and, uh, and he saw a sparrow laying on its back with his feet up in the air, just like this. And he thought for sure that the sparrow was dead. And then he saw, noticed that it was breathing. And he said to the sparrow, he says, are you okay? The sparrow says, yep. What are you doing down there on your back with your feet up in the air? The sparrow says, well, he says, I I heard a rumor that the sky was going to fall. He said, so I wanted to do everything I could to help prevent it. So here I am. And the guy said, come on. He said, if the sky's going to fall, there's nothing that your two scrawny legs are going to do to stop it. And the sparrow looks back up and says to him as serious as he possibly can, well, one does the best one can. <laughs> now, of course, the, the sparrow was, was completely out of touch with the reality. I mean, he was so self-deceived in thinking there was anything he could actually do to prevent the sky from falling. But that is precisely the position that fallen men and women are in if they think that there is anything that they can possibly do to make themselves acceptable to God. Because they cannot. And Paul has laid that out with great clarity both here and in other places in his work. At the same time, Paul goes on to say now, If one has been born again, if one is truly a Christian, if God has done the saving work in an individual, then that person must do good works. Must do good works. He says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, our doing good works is a sign that we are his workmanship. Now Paul, above all people, would say, listen, good works are no way are they a ground for one's salvation. But at the same time, he'd be the first one to say, it is a demonstration of the fruit of your salvation that they exist. If you are saved, you must do good works. There's a, there's a great illustration of this uh, taken from uh, Scottish church history. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, in the late 1800s, a, a famous Scottish clergyman uh, foolishly wrote that uh, he took himself as his own highest authority. And his experience taught him this, that the ministry uh, required only two days a week. I thought that was a lot myself, but... <laughs> concluded that the ministry took only two days a week, leaving the other five days to pursue higher interests, such as mathematics and science. And he concluded that, quote, there's almost no consumption of of intellectual effort in the peculiar employment of a minister. (laughs) Say amen. Well, what was needed was a friendly disposition that enjoyed comforting others and had an open air of honesty. 
That was his position. Then in 1911, this Scottish divine was soundly converted. And his name was Thomas Chalmers. And with his conversion came one of the greatest outpourings of of energy the Scottish church has seen since John Knox. He just could not keep himself from evangelizing and doing social work in the city of Glasgow. And he literally turned it upside down. And the thing that disturbed him the most was he says, Oh, there's such littleness of time. God had taken this this leisured ministerial dilettante and turned him into a powerful force for Jesus Christ. And he lived out Luther's dictum that justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. In fact, we see this reflected in the, in the prayers of the New Testament. For instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Colossians 1.10 Paul prays that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Not only are we to work, to do good works, but we are to realize, as Paul says, that we are to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. And that simply means that from the foundation of the world, God has determined the task, the ability, and the place that each one of us is going to serve over the course of our lives. Now, you may prefer to work in Chicago. The simple fact of the matter is he has you in Greenfield. And whatever task he has called you to do, he has equipped you to do just as surely as he's equipped birds to fly. Your gifting, your talents, your experience, your personality, even your weaknesses and shortcomings, everything, everything is given by God in just the right measure and at just the right time for you to carry out the work that he has called you to do in just the way that he wants you to do it. And in doing these things, we actually become more and more of our true selves. That's what's so extraordinary. There's nothing more wonderful than a man or woman who's been born again by the Spirit of God and who is living and doing the deeds that God has called them to do. Now the hardest thing for us to come to grips with, I think, personally, is that with this sovereignty of God is that it means that the things we're doing now, in the places that we're working now, in the relationships with the people we have now, these are the ones that God has given to us for our good works. You know, because our tendency, isn't it, 
Isn't our tendency to make the mistake of thinking that, you know, if we just, if we get prepared to do that special thing in that special place at that special time, then we will have met the one thing that God has really called us to do. But what we need to see is that God has given us the present circumstances. Who we are, where we are, what we're doing. Those are the places that our good deeds are to be carried out. Those are the people that are to be carried out with and for. And that it's when we're faithful in that, God will move us and prepare us through those for further good deeds, whenever and wherever those might be as well. There's a story that when uh, the famed English architect Sir Christopher Wren uh, was uh, directing the building of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, uh, some of the workers were interviewed by a a journalist uh, who asked them this question, "Uh, what are you doing here? The first said, I'm cutting stone for three shillings a day. The second one said, well, I'm working ten ten hours a day on this job. And the third replied, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build the greatest cathedral in England for the glory of God. And it seems to me that we can look at the things that we do from one of these three perspectives, right? What we get out of it, the three shillings, what it costs us, ten hours a day, or what we contribute to the glory of God. That's the perspective that Paul wants us to take away from this. May you, I, I trust, I pray, each one of us more deeply appreciate who we are and the importance of what we do because it is all based on what God has done. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for reminding us that it's not a matter of preparation, but a matter of surrender to the truth. An embracing of the truth that what we are right now, who we are right now in your hand and the things that we do are the good deeds and that we are already a masterpiece. Our worth has already been established. That we can't increase it, nor can we decrease it. These things are glorious truths, Lord, and we don't have to go looking somewhere else for, for some extra-biblical substantiation of our self-esteem. Grant us, Lord, to, to take away from this the, the true grounding reality that our worth is based in the fact that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are your workmanship. And that the good deeds that we do will glorify you and will help to accomplish your purposes in this world. There is nothing greater, Lord, than to find our joy in that. Help us 
to see that that is really the case and to be free from those cultural or self-imposed frustrations and longings to ultimately dissipate instead of strengthen and energize. For we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.